Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So I'd like to come back for a few moments just to reflect again on the theme that we started with two days ago on Friday, and that is the idea of, of the secular Buddha, or secular Buddhism, secular referring to, to this world, and a secular Buddhist thereby being one whose Buddhist practice is focused entirely on the concerns and the suffering that are in this world in which we live with other humans, with other animals, with an environment, a fragile environment, with no real concern as to what may have preceded this life or what may follow it at death. And in order to do this, I think we have to reconsider um, some very primary Buddhist ideas and perhaps more importantly, assumptions and dogmas. Buddhism, for the most part, in its history so far, has been one that has concerned itself with the goal of nirvana, liberation, liberation from the cycle of birth and death, or liberation from greed and hatred and delusion. But what I think is fairly indisputable is that the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, as it's usually called, has been seen as the goal. And it doesn't seem to strike people as odd that it should be the third noble truth that's seen as the goal rather than the fourth. What I'm suggesting is that we need to rethink the very structure of this primary Buddhist doctrine, that of the four noble truths. We started by pointing out that the Buddha himself declares quite unambiguously that his awakening meant that he had awoken to the 12 aspects of the Four Noble Truths. And until he had done that, he could not consider himself a Buddha. He doesn't say, my awakening is because I attained Nibbana. Now when we look at the structure of the Four Noble Truths in terms of tasks, 
we see a sequence of actions that culminate in the Eightfold Path. And as we've seen both in the structure of the first sermon, in the parable of the city, the Eightfold Path is that which leads to the Four Noble Truths, the fourth of which is the Eightfold Path, which leads to the Four Noble Truths. And that, I think, is a framework in which we can um, see a primarily secular intent. In other words, the Four Noble Truths are a template for the creation of another kind of culture, or as the Buddha put it, for the construction of another kind of city, metaphorically. Now, some of us, particularly in the light of the reflections I offered yesterday afternoon on, on fully knowing Dukkha, might think that this is a rather grim affair, <laughs> since this is where one begins. But um, I think we need to qualify that with, again, a passage that comes from the, the fifth book of the Sanyutta Nikaya, where the Buddha says, I do not say that the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths is accompanied by suffering or displeasure. It is accompanied only by happiness and joy. This, I think, points to the fact that although we begin our practice with the, uh, the fully knowing, as he puts it, of dukkha, this is only the starting point. This is what allows us to as it were, get real, achieve a degree of honesty and depth in our lives in which we embrace um, wholeheartedly the human condition, which, unavoidably, is one in which we are born, in which we age, in which we die. Now, what we normally do not do is... Um, is precisely this. We spend a lot of our life evading that primary awareness. And in doing so, the strategies of evasion become determined by craving, by grasping, by this rather futile attempt to organize and sort out the world in a way that will satisfy me. And this is a futile endeavor because of the, the inherent impermanence of things, the conditionality of things, the unpredictability of things, the conflicting desires of different people, we end up constantly finding ourselves back where we started and repeating that same cycle again and again. <coughs> so the four truths are basically um, a strategy that explains how we can move uh, out of that vicious cycle of grasping. And... This starts with fully knowing dukkha that, that undermines the rationale of grasping that opens up another set of possibilities of how to live in this world. And even a practice like the one Martin just introduced, that of uh, asking this question, what is this? That too, I would understand, as another way of fully knowing dukkha. Dukkha, remember as the Buddha defines it in the first sermon, is this psychophysical condition is dukkha. In other words, everything uh, that we experience. When we ask, what is this? 
I would understand the this as referring to the totality of our experience, unconditionally. In some texts it talks about, uh, in Chinese texts, they talk about the this being the great matter of birth and death. Again, first noble truth. What is this? One of the great um, uh, strengths of this meditation, I feel, is that it combines inquiry with letting go. Second noble truth. When you ask, what is this? Implicitly, you're acknowledging, I don't know what this is. I don't know. In other words, the more you, 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 you uh, penetrate your experience with this kind of perplexity, there f begins to be a falling away, quite naturally, of opinions and views and, and attachments to ideas, attachments to what I am, that begins to unravel, begins to <coughs> fall off. And so, in fact, this practice is a practice of the first and the second noble truths. What is this? I don't know. That I don't know is a form of opening, a form of letting go, that is not an end in itself, but rather creates a space for another response to the world to be possible. Now what I want to look at today is, is, is how this process culminates in the fourth noble truth, uh, which is that of creating or cultivating an Eightfold Path. And this is um, essentially what is meant by the idea of, of stream entry, of entering the stream. Now, entering the stream is, is an expression that is found in, in Theravada Buddhism particularly. It's often thought of as uh, that moment when you uh, have that first authentic uh, glimpse of Nibbana and you are then, as it were, um, uh, uh, you, you then enter the, the, the course that will lead you inevitably to the cessation of birth and death, to complete liberation as embodied in the figure of the Arahant. But again, this is a view that is premised on the third noble truth, the cessation of craving, or as is usually said, the cessation of suffering, as the end of the, as the, end of the path. But if we look at, again, what the Buddha himself has to say, which I think bears some importance in this matter, <laughs> we get a rather different picture. This is from the fifth book of the Sanyutta Nikaya. The Buddha is speaking. He's speaking to his disciple Sariputta, and he says, Sariputta, this is said, the stream, the stream. What now, Sariputta, is the stream? And Sariputta answers, This noble eightfold path, venerable sir, is the stream. That is appropriate vision, thinking, speaking, acting, working, trying, 
recollecting, concentrating. Sariputta, the Buddha then asks, this is said, a stream entrant, a stream entrant. What now, Sariputta, is a stream entrant? And Sariputta says, one who possesses this noble eightfold path, venerable sir, is called a stream entrant. Now here we quite clearly have an emphasis, not on Nibbana, or on some sort of liberation, but in fact on the possession of the Eightfold Path. Now what does it mean to possess the Eightfold Path? Unfortunately I haven't checked this with the Pali, so I don't quite know exactly what word is being used for possess. But what it means, I think, is that the Eightfold Path becomes one's own. In other words, this path is not just something that you have some vague idea about, or you have uh, some, uh, some sense of uh, following a certain moral code, doing certain practices, uh, thereby doing a kind of a Buddhist thing, and you loosely call that the Eightfold Path. But rather, you... Um, actually have made that way of life your own. It's now something that is, 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 is integrated into the very fabric of your life. In, and that means in all aspects. It doesn't mean that you've become a kind of a spiritual expert in meditation or something, but rather in what you see here and, and say and think and do and your work, it's all somehow part of an integral whole that is emerging out of this uh, deep uh, conviction that you do not need to live your life according to the promptings of your attachments and your fears and your hatreds. In other words, you are unconditioned by such things. And that is the third noble truth. The, 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 the falling away, the, the, those moments in which that, those patterns of behavior, those habits have, 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 have periodically stopped, or else, even if they haven't stopped, you can see them for what they are and you're no longer beholden to them in your life, then you enter the Eightfold Path. So in this, I mean, this, these sorts of passages confirm the idea that the it's the Eightfold Path that is the goal. It's also, I think, worth pointing out that the very first thing the Buddha is said to have taught after his awakening, and that's, in other words, the very first statement in the very first sermon, the Buddha says, I have awoken to a middle way, the Eightfold Path. And the very last thing he teaches to his his final student, a man called Subhadda, who comes to the Buddha when the Buddha is lying on his deathbed at Kusinara. And Subhadda asks Ananda, the attendant, I'd very much like to have a word with this Buddha. And Ananda says, no, 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 he's, he's not fit to take any more questions. The Buddha overhears this request and says, no, it's okay, Ananda, send him to me. So Subhadda comes and presumably kneels down beside the, 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 the supine Buddha, who's only got a day or two to live, 
and asks for instruction. And he poses him this question. He says, how am I to know when so many people claim to be speaking about what you teach? What is the characteristic that distinguishes your teaching from other teachers? And the Buddha replies, wherever you find a teaching that contains the um, teaching of the Eightfold Path, there you will find my Dhamma. So in the Alpha and at the Omega of his 45-year teaching career is the Eightfold Path. I think it's rather unfortunate that uh, for many of us, and I can remember this was the case for me as well, that um, uh, the Eightfold Path is seen as like Buddhism 101. Uh, beginners. It's, it's very, something very basic. Something not terribly sexy. And yet, I think the problem here is that we haven't really appreciated how central it is and also how difficult it is to practice. It's also the case that when one um, enters this Eightfold Path in a uh, in an authentic way, in other words, not just a sort of a cultural preference or something that you're ex is expected of you to promote as a Buddhist, but when you really take it to heart, then it's not something that is just for monks and nuns. And in fact, and again, I read out another passage here. There are not only 100 or 500, but far more men and women lay followers, my disciples, clothed in white enjoying sensual pleasures, who carry out my instruction, respond to my advice, or have become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, and become independent of others in my teaching. Now this is another stock passage that likewise describes the idea of stream entry, that you have become independent of others in the Buddha's teaching. You've become your own authority. Even if you're a lay person who enjoys sensual pleasures. And this, I think, is also what is meant by the idea of possessing the Eightfold Path. It has become your own. You are now somehow um, not bound to keep referring back to the authority of somebody else. Now, religions, whatever stripe or color they are, are very much in the business of telling you who's in charge, who's the boss, where the authority lies. And in Buddhism, this has fairly invariably become a body of ordained monks and nuns, or priests, or lamas, or roshis, or whatever it is. They're the ones who know, and in most traditions, um, what has happened over history is that the gap between the ordinary lay practitioner, so-called, and the spiritual elite who have all the titles and all the positions and all the power, they're the ones who have the enlightenment, the understanding, the um, insights uh, that we aspire towards. In other words, religion, as Marx and, and Feuerbach uh, pointed out, is very often a system of alienation. It alienates us from our own essential um, powers, those of love, of wisdom, and these become projected onto figures um, other than ourselves 
who are in positions of authority over us. Um, in the Christian tradition, I think this is very clearly illustrated um, at the moment of the Reformation, where Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and these guys uh, suddenly make a break and they say, no, we do not need the intermediary of ecclesiastical powers to have a relationship with God. This is very much the Protestant Reformation. And remember, Protestant, whatever, whatever connotations that word might have for us today, starts with the idea of protest. We normally don't associate Protestant with protest. But that's what the word is actually saying. Protestants. Protesters. And I feel that there are moments, likewise, in the history of Buddhism where similar protests have broken out. The formation of the Chan, or Zen tradition, in China, I think, is a very good example of that. To some extent, the formation of the Vajrayana tradition by the Mahasiddhas in India. Possibly even more recently in, in Thailand and Burma with the, with the forest tradition, breaking away from the more city-based clerics. And we might see it in India today with the movement of the Dalits, the um, former untouchables who are now converting to Buddhism, not because they want to become enlightened or attain nirvana or whatever, but because they want social justice. And Buddhism has become for them a socio-political identity, and it is a movement of protest. There's a wonderful image the Buddha likewise uses uh, to, um, uh, to, to describe a person who has, as he says, grasped the meaning of the four truths. First of all, he says that a person who has not grasped the meaning of the four truths is like a tuft of cotton wool or capon, which is blown hither and thither by the wind. And such a person, as soon as an, a teacher or guru comes into town, is likely to look up into the face of that person and say, Oh, this worthy one is surely one who knows, who truly sees. Yet one who has understood the four truths, the Buddha says, is compared to a stone column 16 feet high, half of which is sunk in the ground and half of which stands above it. For no matter how hard the winds blow, such a person does not shake, quake or tremble and has no inclination to go seeking wisdom at the feet of every passing guru. This is a very powerful image. I only came across it fairly recently. It's again tucked away on page 1322 or something of the Sanyutta But here we have a very, very concrete um, metaphor. A stone column, 16 feet, or you might say cubits in the original, 16 feet high, half of which is buried in the ground, half of which is above the ground. Now, why 16, and why divide it into two? It, the, the, the text does not uh, elaborate on this, but it seems fairly obvious to me. 
that we're talking again about the Eightfold Path. And what I think is, is particularly telling about this image is that half of this column is out of sight. Half of this column is embedded in the, in the soil. And that's what gives it its stability. Now, I think in a, in a modern culture like ours, we'd probably give, could give that a psychological interpretation. Namely, half of our practice is actually going on beneath the threshold of consciousness in what we might call the unconscious, in those areas of our brain that are not um, uh, accessible to our daily wakeful consciousness, but are still nonetheless processing information, um, somehow working away at these, um, at integrating these ideas um, in, in a subliminal manner. And I think for many of us who, who, who do, say, daily meditation practice, we might begin to find, especially over time, that even if we have what we might call a lousy meditation, you know, we sit for 30 minutes in the morning before going to work, and our mind is like a kind of a headless chicken running around all over the place. <laughs> we feel irritated, irritated, restless, sleepy, and we think, why bother? I think it's well worth bothering. The very fact of sitting, the very fact of, of somehow um, expressing a, a physical commitment to a particular way of life, I feel has effects even if those effects are not registered in our conscious experience of that moment. That a lot of this practice, I feel, is going on uh, in a sort of subterranean way. And that gives us a kind of groundedness, in a sense. And half of our practice is our presence in the world, the, the part of that column that is above the surface, which again suggests very much that the practice is um, uh, a public act. It's there in the world. It's visible. It's, ex it's visible in terms of how we present ourselves through our bodily <coughs> actions, our words, our work, and even to some extent in all of those rather subtle messages we put out through our facial expression, through the way we comport ourselves, perhaps through even through the way that we arrange our living space, the way we express ourselves, the way we give, we give form to what we value most deeply. So the practice, so to, to, to possess the Eightfold Path, to become an auth one's own authority in this matter, does provide one with a kind of existential groundedness or rootedness in the world. Now what else does the Buddha have to say about stream entry? Well, this is the, there's this, this one passage called the Sotapati Samyutta, the, the connected discourses on stream entry. And the main thrust, the passage that's repeated the most often as a definition of stream entry is the following. Bhikkhus, a noble disciple who possesses four things, is a stream enterer. What for? Here, monks, a noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha, 
possesses confirmed confidence in the Dharma, possesses confirmed confidence in the Sangha, and possesses the virtues that are dear to the noble ones. That is a streamage. Now, again, when I read that, I got a bit of a shock. This surely is the taking of refuge, which is even more Buddhism 101. <laughs> Normally, taking of refuge is seen as a sort of public ritual that one undergoes in order to be accepted into the Buddhist club. It is, it is often just that, you know, it's, it can be very heartfelt. I suspect it is. But the point is that it's not seen as equivalent to stream entry. And you hear the Buddha again and again is saying that it is. So what's going on? Again, I think we have to rethink what we mean by this, this primary commitment called taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and the Sangha. What does that really mean? I remember my Tibetan teacher, Geshe Rabton, once said something once that really stuck in my mind. He said, whenever you practice mindfulness or, or meditation, you are taking refuge. The taking refuge in the Dhamma is not repeating a formulaic statement one, once in a while, but is actually to practice it, to do it. When we're sitting here in meditation in the morning, if we're giving ourselves wholeheartedly to that practice of what is this, or the practice of paying attention to the breath and developing mindfulness or concentration, we are taking refuge in the Dhamma. Literally. We, we are putting our trust into that particular practice, that particular exercise. And in doing so, we are also taking refuge in the, in the Buddha. We are putting our trust in the fact that, yes, this is a worthwhile thing. It can lead us to being more awake. Maybe ultimately becoming as awakened as the Buddha himself. And we're also taking refuge in the Sangha. We are putting our trust in the community of, of teachers, the community of friends, community of all of those who are committed to a similar set of values. Sangha, for the Buddha, very clearly here, and he defines it, does not mean religious professionals, the monks and the nuns, or the priests, the authorities. Sangha refers to anybody who has entered the Eightfold Path, truly, who's authentically integrated that path in such a way that it has become part of their life. Such a person is a member of the Sangha. Such a person is a person in whom one has confirmed confidence as the Buddha puts it. So I think we need to rethink a lot of these ideas and to recognize that the taking of refuge is actually a very core, a very central part of the practice itself, of the whole way of life. It's a, pri it's a fundamental reorientation of values. 
rather than uh, taking refuge in, um, in wealth or in status or in possessions or in fame or in all of the other things that we tend to take refuge in, we t place our confidence and our trust in living this way of life. In other words, it's the exact opposite of craving. Craving, which is, the, is our habitual response to dukkha, is basically an, an inadequate refuge. We, we crave to have this, we crave to fix this problem, we crave to um, resolve this difficulty by getting this or getting rid of that, and we, and we, and we put our trust in that. We, 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 we have complete confidence, at least for the moment, that if we do this, we'll sort the problem out. But unfortunately, it only at best will give a short-term solution before we find ourselves back once again at this sense of incompleteness, this sense of inadequacy, this sense of, 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 of dukkha. So we then take refuge in something else. Um, alcohol, let's say. So craving, therefore, um, is, is uh, uh, also a taking of refuge, but in things that do not actually deliver. The, the taking of refuge in, 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 in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, or as the Buddha also frames it, the uh, um, entering the Eightfold Path, entering the stream, that might be a refuge that actually works. And not in terms of working for some hypothetical liberation after so many more lifetimes of strenuous practice, but here and now. In terms of giving us that rootedness like that pillar, becoming grounded um, here and now in this world. There is, of course, um, for many of us, a definition of stream entry that I haven't mentioned, and some of you might be wondering, why hasn't he mentioned that? And that is that when one enters the stream, that one loses three fetters, that three things drop off. Now, this is a very subjective definition of, of stream entry, and one that barely occurs in the Buddha's text on stream entry. Nonetheless, we do find it in the early canon, so clearly it does have authority. And in this particular definition, what falls away at stream entry is the view of what's called sakaya ditti, uh, the view of basically egoism, sometimes translated as the view of individuality. Um, sakaya doesn't mean either of those things, it means whole body view, literally. But what it is generally understood to mean is that at stream entry, we also relinquish the idea that we are a fixed and permanent self. And we open up to the possibility that we are not, uh, that, that instead of being a fixed and permanent ego, we are a, a project that can be realized. We are an unfinished project. I'm going to come back to this this afternoon. But the Buddha's understanding of not-self is not actually a denial of self, as I've said a few times, but actually freeing us 
from the idea that we are the body, that we are the mind, that we are the thoughts, or that we're something existing separately from. The self is really a process that is uh, created through our practice. I'll come back to that this afternoon. The other thing that falls away is what is called doubt, and that again clearly has uh, strong resonances with the fact that one now in such a, 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 a phase of one's practice has confirmed confidence in this set of values we've described. And the third thing that falls away is, um, is called silabata, at least in the earliest uh, source in the Sutta Nipata, which actually means virtue and vows. It's usually translated as attachment to rites and rituals. But that's not what the text said. And so it somehow thought that when you become a stream entrant, then you no longer believe in the efficacy of performing the Brahmanic rituals and, and mantras and so on. <coughs> but it's rather more troubling than that. It actually refers simply to virtues and vows. And um, it's reminiscent perhaps of the passage I read out yesterday, which has to do with... Um, the, 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 the dead end of religion, which includes celibacy, um, virtues and vows again, that somehow one goes beyond, this is what I think it means, one goes beyond an ethic that is based upon rules and precepts, and one moves to an ethic that is based upon wisdom and love. In other words, a situational ethic. But I'll come back that, to that uh, also uh, this afternoon. I'd like to conclude with another passage um, that concerns a man called Sarakani the Sakyan. He's also in included in the same body of text that I've been reading from. Now on that occasion, the text says, Sarakani the Sakyan died and the Buddha had declared him to be a stream entrant Thereupon a number of Sakyans deplored this, and they said, Oh, wonderful indeed, sir. Now who will not be a stream entrant when the Buddha has declared Sarakani to be a stream entrant? <laughs> Sarakani, the Sakyan, was too weak for the training. He drank intoxicating drink. <coughs> Sarakani was the local drunk, stoner. <laughs> but when this was reported to the Buddha, the Buddha said, if one speaking rightly were to say of anyone, he was a lay follower who had gone for refuge over a long time to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, it is of Sarakani the Sakyan that one could rightly say this. So how could he go to a lower realm, which was the belief at the time? Now this again is a passage that is very likely to have been added later. It's, it, it, and it's also a troubling passage, because it suggests that stream entry doesn't mean that you now become morally perfect. In fact, it seems to be able to embrace in the Sangha, the community, the so-called sinner, there is a kind of, for me at least, a rather Christian resonance here. 
that um, even though Sarakani had some problems, Sarakani was nonetheless committed in his heart to this path. He had entered the stream. He had become a stream entrant. He had confirmed confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. He had let go of a fixed idea of ego. He no longer had these kind of vacillations or, or waverings or doubts. Uh, he was committed to a, a kind of situational ethic in his life. And yet he was a drunk. I'll leave that as a question. <laughs> and we'll stop there. <laughs>